Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Poyer filling in for Mackie this week to bring you a special podcast episode. If you've listened to Build before, my voice will sound familiar. I'm excited to be back for one episode only, and no, I'm not here to talk about pricing. Today, it's all about the results of our 2019 Expansion SaaS Benchmark Survey. And joining me for the podcast, we have my co-author, Sean Fanning, and a guest from our friends at NetSuite, Tom Kelly. Sean and Tom, could you both introduce yourselves to listeners? Absolutely. Thank you, Kyle. Hi, everyone. This is Sean Fanning. I am Director of Corporate Development here at OpenView, where I focus on all things inorganic and balance sheet related for our portfolio, in addition to leading our benchmarking practice alongside Kyle. My name is Tom Kelly, and I'm with Oracle NetSuite. I started in the finance ranks, been a CFO, CEO for many companies from billion-dollar organizations to startups. I ran my own company for several years, and it was focused on getting organizations into the cloud. And then as some people will say, I've made it to the dark side as the last three years I'm heading up product marketing and product management efforts at Oracle NetSuite. Should be a perfect group to talk about benchmark findings. And so in today's episode of Build, we're going to review key findings from the 2019 Benchmark Survey, which is our third annual benchmarking survey. You can read along with us at sasbenchmarks.com. And this year's survey covered key topics that are top of mind to SaaS founders and operators, like growth rates, go-to-market strategy, team makeup, unit economics, product-led growth adoption, and much more. I wanted to give a special thank you to this year's survey partners for making this survey our biggest yet. We had more than 500 companies participate. Let's start by talking a little bit more about who participated in this year's survey. What did the respondents look like, Sean? Yeah, definitely. Like you said, we had a record number of respondents this year, Kyle, approaching nearly 500 companies ranging from pre-revenue businesses all the way up to $150 million plus revenue publicly traded SaaS businesses, which is really exciting. About a quarter of our respondents were sub 1 million in ARR, half were between 1 and 20 million, and the rest were generating more than 20 million of annual revenues. Our respondents were predominantly management team members, with nearly half indicating they were either a CEO or founder, and another quarter were either CFOs or heads of finance. So really strong validation that we've got the most accurate data. And the balance of respondents were other C-suite members, including COOs, CMOs, and CROs. The majority, so approximately two-thirds of responses, came from companies selling enterprise software to mid-market and enterprise customers. And then with respect to geography, just over half of our responses came from U.S. companies. And we did notice a few hotbeds outside of the U.S., so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, the U.K., and the Nordics, which collectively represented 30% of our responses. It's great. I think it gives us pretty good coverage into the variety of software companies that exist out there. And now let's get into some of the major insights from this year's study. First off, we saw that 2018 was the best year on record for software IPOs, and there were actually 17 new public companies raising a collective $5.1 billion, which is 2x more than the next highest year. And this year, we've also had major IPOs and public listings from the likes of Slack and Zoom. And what have you both observed from this wave of IPOs? Well, it's been really exciting to see all these companies hit the public markets. But one really interesting thing that has jumped out to me about both the 2018 IPOs as well as the pricing events we've seen so far this year, and then those that are planned for the rest of 2019, is how many of these IPO'd companies have really embraced product-led growth as their primary go-to-market motion. So, so far in 2019, four of the seven completed IPOs and both of the pending IPOs, so Cloudflare and Datadog are PLG businesses. That's two-thirds of the IPOs this year that have been product-led growth businesses. You know, the companies that are out there offer some great functionality. And, you know, it's no doubt that I think, as your study indicated, that software companies account for one-fifth of all domestic R&D spending in the U.S. And, you know, I personally use Slack and Zoom just about every day, not to mention 
many other of the companies in your PLG listing. But one thing I do want to point out is, you know, NetSuite does help companies grow. And it's pretty indicative that many of the organizations actually in the PLG group and recent IPOs, probably upwards of about 80% use the product to help with, you know, growth and, and operations to make sure that they can do things like embracing the important concepts of PLG. Well, let's talk more about product-led growth, which won't be new to listeners of this podcast because this season is all about the topic. As we've alluded to, we put a special emphasis on product-led growth in the survey this year, and some really interesting patterns emerged, particularly around financial profiles of PLG businesses, as well as some of the more common product-led growth tactics. Many companies leveraging PLG tend to grow slower when they are subscale. They're investing in product, not sales and marketing, but they really reap the benefits of the investment in product at later stages when their virality hits an inflection point and they grow faster than their non-product-led growth peers. We also learned that many companies have dipped their toe into the product-led growth waters. Four out of five companies in our survey said they had adopted at least one tactic, whether that be self-service signups, in-product onboarding, product analytics. But these are really kind of foundational to PLG. And just one third of the companies in our survey noted that PLG was fundamental to their business. So there's still some hesitation to go all in on product-led growth. It's been super interesting to see. I mean, from my perspective, embracing product-led growth really starts with this recognition that we are moving into the end-user era of software buying. And so instead of just selling to the CIO or the executive, increasingly end users are having the flexibility to bring their own preferred software to work. And so they want to have the same quality of experiences that they can have as a consumer and on their phone in a business context. And I think that's driving a lot of increasing success of these product-led businesses that have responded to it. So in this new world, having a well-designed user experience is absolutely imperative. And distribution needs to start adapting to this end user influencer as well. So paywall should probably come after the user has seen value and activated in the product. We're seeing product-led businesses almost always allow customers to try before they buy. So a free trial or self-service buying experience are becoming the norm. And when you do have a free offering, it's imperative that you optimize that in-product onboarding. With end users, you have only a limited amount of time and attention to get them hooked on the product. And you want users to grok the product extremely quickly, ideally in hours or minutes. And then paywalls can come after they're fully hooked. Yeah, I guess we could say that the old adage of crawl, walk, and run is alive in 2019. You know, the term you use, grok the product, I really like that because it really implies that software companies need to establish a rapport with the users. It's really one of the key tenants that uh, you know we try to follow at NetSuite so that you know as organizations are using the product, they can leverage it down to the user role. And so that's interesting information. Another area that we looked into with this survey is the rise of SaaS companies outside of some of the you know, hot spots that people typically think of as being the technology hotbed. So if you think about the really high cost regions like San Francisco, New York City, Boston, Seattle, Denver, Boulder, and Austin, venture funding is extremely concentrated in these metros. But we found that founders in companies headquartered in high cost regions are 50% more likely to be concerned about fundraising and 40% more likely to be worried about burning too much cash than their peers. So things don't look too promising for these companies. What advice do you both have for companies in these high cost regions? It's a really great question, Kyle. You know, our team at OpenView is geographically agnostic with respect to our investments. And while we have invested in some of these high cost areas, we've also partnered with some really incredible companies headquartered in the Midwest, Utah, Colorado, Brazil, Australia, and Israel. So we've seen first 
firsthand the cost advantages of being in lower cost regions. Many companies like GitHub, GitLab, and others, including our newest portfolio company, Belena, have gone a step further and actually promote a remote-first culture, which I think is really helpful advice. We're seeing increasing research suggests that flexible work policies and remote-first cultures provide companies with really unique advantages. For one, they've got access to global pools of top talent, and they're not constrained to crowded or expensive talent markets in San Francisco, et cetera. And there's lower or no office overhead. The last really key point is that studies actually prove remote employees are more productive. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I agree with that. But, you know, I guess I'll, I'll lean on my CFO experiences in the past. The comment about keeping your eye on the bottom line is always an important component, you know, in terms of solidly managing organization. But in my experience, what I found is, you know, companies, you know, they tend to do a good job at maybe that bottom line. But what they probably need to do is consider the income statement as more of a portfolio. You know, the example I'd give is, you know, stock portfolios out there, you're, you're going to have some winners and you're going to have some losers and you want to make sure you're doing the right allocation of funds to, you know, those stocks that are to give you the biggest bang for the buck. Well, I think the same thing has to be true of, you know, what an organization is going to do to drive its business. So having that insight, that capability, and I'm sure we'll be talking about metrics here, you know, to make sure that you're employing the right type of decisions, I guess, if you will, on those portfolios that make up the lines of your income statement, whether it's the top or the bottom line or anything in between. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. And one thing companies might want to consider if they are in a high cost region is if you look at the cost of engineering and R&D salaries in high cost regions, it's really just the competition for talent, the ability to hire quality people and have them stay with you. It just makes it more and more enticing to look at a remote first engineering organization where you can tap into global talent pools, find folks that you know want to live in their ideal place, which a lot of times is a low cost place, and find ways to motivate them and bring them on board. And that allow you to bring down one of the biggest line item costs in the organization, which is that R&D spend, while actually having better culture, great employees and better employee retention. Moving on to perhaps a pretty counterintuitive finding from the survey this year was that the legend of, call it the 20-something-year-old tech founder, the Zuckerbergs of the world, is just that. It's mythology. It's, it's legend. We actually found that founders over 30 years old operate companies that perform better. You know, They may not capture headlines, but these founders are seeing 65% higher growth, 45% less monthly cash burn than their younger peers. be curious if either of you guys have thoughts on why that might be. When you look at other examples in life, I think you see a familiar trend in that regard. You know, that experience and practice leads to success. If you look at an example like a baseball situation, you have players that, few as they may be, can go right to the major leagues and perform at a high level. But in reality, they stay in the minor leagues and they get kind of groomed or trained, if you will, for success so that, uh, you know, when they get to the big leagues, they're ready to excel. And so that experience really comes in handy, I think, whether you're going to assume the helm of a company or you're going to start your own organization. I think looking at the founders in our portfolio as well, adding on to that point, in a lot of cases, they need to observe the pain point and market opportunity firsthand. And having experience in a technology company or as a customer for that kind of a solution is extremely valuable for getting that insight that can inspire you to do something differently. So if you think about the founder of Zoom, before Zoom, he led the engineering team at WebEx, where he came to believe 
the service simply wasn't very good. And someday someone is going to build something on the cloud and it's going to kill the WebEx business. So he wanted to be the one that disrupted it. And, you know, in our portfolio, after 16 years at Microsoft struggling to adequately equip his sales team with the right content, Robert Wabi founded our portfolio company, Highspot, which brings automation and intelligence to sales and marketing teams. And so we see that having that firsthand experience, companies can really hone in on the right problems and build a solution that's going to be unique in the market. And I want to finish with a few rapid fire questions, actually. So first off, what was your favorite takeaway from this year's benchmarks? Yeah, I can start. I was stunned at the level of worry founders have about cash burn, particularly in some of the tech hotbeds. So even though there's no shortage of capital available, I mean, we talked about the record year for SaaS IPOs and, you know, fundraising records are continuing to be set at seed, venture, growth, PE stages, valuations are all-time highs, but people are still worried about cash. Maybe it's the recession talks we've been seeing in the news, but maybe we're also just starting to see a shift in how people think about growth at all costs, given how companies like Uber and Lyft have fared in the public markets. I guess I would say, you know, going in line with the, you know, the mythology of the 20-year-old founders that companies headquarters outside of the tech meccas performed well or better than those in the tech meccas. For me, I think one thing that I was surprised about was the top things that keep founders up at night was the same kind of regardless of company size. And it was all about product and go-to-market execution. And to me, I think it's easier than ever to start a new SaaS company but with all of the great SaaS companies out there, you know, companies having built great SaaS products since the 2000s, like Salesforce, while it's easy to start a company, it's extremely hard to gain traction and win in the market. And so everyone is heads down trying to out-execute their peers. Next rapid fire question is, what's your number one piece of advice on how SaaS founders can take action based on this benchmark data? Yeah, well, going on the theme of fear of cash burn and benchmarks, that's the topic of the day. You know, I would say founders really need to leverage benchmarks and key SaaS metrics to manage their business as soon as possible from pre-revenue if possible, but have goals and be accountable. In the early days, numbers are going to be skewed and you won't yet be operating at scale, but tracking from the get-go is going to give you the greatest opportunity to make improvements over time and will also really help accelerate the understanding of the underlying inputs to any business model. The last key thing is just knowing everybody is keeping an eye on these metrics is going to support a culture focused on efficient growth as opposed to growth at all costs. I'd build on that a little bit to say that, you know, it's really important to understand your vision and your mission. You know, one of the examples I'd give is if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, it's a phenomenal example of an organization focused on the key things, right? Because their, their overall goal was to land a man on the moon and bring him safely back to earth. But as we all know, they didn't land safely on the moon, but they still would get them back to Earth. And everybody at Mission Control was focused on that one thing, you know, guided by it, if you will. So I think that's extremely important, you know, in, in any endeavor in life, let alone starting up a company or, or leading a company. I think on my side, just knowing that founders are so concerned about their ability to execute on product and go to market. To me, it comes down a lot of cases to segmentation and Tom, to your point, focus is that a lot of startups have nearly limitless market opportunity, but they don't have the product engineering sales or marketing resources to gain traction and that whole market all at once. And it's critical to focus and get the organization aligned and really hone that product market fit in a subsection of the market and then gradually expand from that position of strength. And so you might have a segmentation problem if you're continually hearing things like, 
our product can work for everyone, or each sales rep has their own way of finding new leads, or if we just build this one new feature, we could sign up this major account. So I would take the time to do a detailed segmentation exercise, know where you want to play, and then get the whole organization aligned and rallied around going after that segment. Well, thanks, Sean and Tom, for joining us for this special episode of OV Build. Next week, we're actually going to be back with our regularly scheduled programming with Raj Bhargava, CEO of JumpCloud. He's going to be discussing how they've adopted product-led growth at JumpCloud, which is an open view portfolio company. And to check out this year's benchmarks, visit sasbenchmarks.com and make sure to download the full report. Thanks, everyone. Hey, listeners, it's Kyle from OpenView. I wanted to give you all a heads up about our upcoming Product-Led Growth Summit in San Francisco on November 13th. There's an amazing lineup of speakers from companies like Slack, SurveyMonkey, Rothy's, Expensify, and much more. You can request an invite at plgsummit.com. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in to the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>